And hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Demimond Paranormal Podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Tori, from Demimond Paranormal on Facebook.com, as well as here on Anchor. And tonight we're going to be talking about a very infamous, prolific lady serial killer. You may know her as the Blood Countess. Now tonight, ladies and gentlemen, is the story of Elizabeth Bathory. Now, Elizabeth Bathory has been the subject for many books and movies and even TV shows. She's also said to be, she could have been the, some of the inspiration, aside from Vlad the Impaler, for Bram Stoker's novel, Dracula. So tonight we're, gonna, we're going to dive in deep into her atrocities. And let me tell you, they are atrocities. Some things I did know, some things I didn't. Sometimes when I was, you know, doing the research for tonight's episode, I was really shocked about what I've read. I mean, it was just that wild. So, without any further ado, let's get into tonight's episode. And learn the real accounts of the Blood Countess. Hello and welcome. Thanks so, so much for joining me for tonight's episode. And as I mentioned before, tonight's episode is going to be about a human monster. Her name was Elizabeth Bathory, a.k.a. the Blood Countess. Now, Elizabeth holds a world record in the Guinness Book of World Records as the most prolific female serial killer. The number of her victims is still debated, but it's believed to be in the hundreds. And we're going to get into that in just a little bit more detail further down the road. Elizabeth Bathory was born in August... She was born in August, August the 7th, in sixth in 1560. She owned the land in the Kingdom of Hungary, 
which now consists of Hungary, Slovakia, and Romania. She was a noblewoman born into the family of Bathory. She was born on a family estate in Yerbator, Royal Hungary. She spent her child spent her spent her childhood in Istid Castle. Her father was Baron George V of the Istid branch of the family, and he was also a Vovoid in Transylvania. Her mother was Baroness Anna Bathory, who was the daughter of Stephen Bathory of Salmio. He was also a Vovoid in Transylvania. On her mother's side of the family, Elizabeth was the niece of Hungarian noble Stephen Bathory, and she was also related to the King of Poland, the Grand Duke of Lithuania, who was the Polish and Lithuanian the Polish Lithuanian Com- Commonwealth, and she was also related to the Prince of Transylvania. Her older brother, Stephen Bath, another Stephen Bathory, would later become the royal judge of Hungary. Now, as a child, Elizabeth suffered multiple seizures. Now, that's thought. There's a theory that this was brought on, that the epilepsy was brought on through inbreeding of her parents. In the time of Elizabeth's childhood, epilepsy was referred to as the falling disease. And a treatment of the falling disease included rubbing the blood of a person who did not suffer from the falling disease or epilepsy upon the afflicted's lips. Also, there's another treatment. They would also give the patient a mixture of the non-sufferer's blood and a piece of the non-sufferer's skull to the epileptic person as their episode ended. There is a speculation that Elizabeth's murderous crimes were in efforts to try to cure her long-term illness, but there is no hard evidence of this. Some sources speculate that Elizabeth's cruel personality had developed later in life and was taught to her through her early years by her own family. It's thought that she had witnessed brutal punishments done by her family's officers. And what is one brutal penalty that an officer may have carried out that Elizabeth may have seen? Well, I have read somewhere, and I can't remember where I've read this from, but there's a theory or a speculation, if you will, that they think, sources think, you know, historians, that Elizabeth may have seen a man being sewn up inside a dying horse. And she saw that as a young child.
Now, as we said before, it's also believed that she was taught to be cruel by members of her own family as well. And these family members are also thought, according to witnesses and some, you know, hearsay, if you will, that these family members that had apparently taught Elizabeth to be cruel and cunning and cold-blooded, they're also dabbling in occult practices, witchcraft, Satanism. However, there is no actual hard proof of this as well. Elizabeth was raised as a Calvinist Protestant, and as a young woman, she learned Latin, Greek, Hungarian, and German. She was born into a family of wealth and prominent social rank. So she was also endowed with great educational um, advances. When she was at the age of 13, Elizabeth was reported to have given birth to a child who was fathered by a peasant boy. The child was supposedly taken to a woman entrusted by the Bathory family. It's believed that when the woman was paid for her actions, the child was taken to Wallachia. Evidence of the pregnancy was uncovered long after her death. The rumor, the rumor spread mostly around peasants, but it is also frequently disputed. By the age of 11 or 12, Elizabeth was engaged to Count Ferenc Nastity. It's possible that this was, an arranged, this was arranged for political gain in a circle of aristocracy. Elizabeth's social standing was higher than her own husband's, and she had refused to take her husband's surname. Instead, he took the name of Bathory. When they married, Elizabeth was 14 and Ferenz was only 19. Their wedding was held at the palace on the 8th of May, 1575. The wedding had guests of up to 4,500 attending the wedding approximately. As a wedding gift, Ferenc presented Elizabeth with his household. The castle was originally bought by his mother in 1569 and was given to Ferenc, who then transferred the property to Elizabeth. during their nuptials. In 1578, Ferenc became the chief of Hungarian troops and led them to war against the Ottoman Empire. While after her, hus while her husband was away at war, 
Elizabeth was charged with the responsibilities of managing her husband's estates, his affairs and his estates, and even providing medical care to the Hungarian people. During the long war, Elizabeth was handed even more responsibility when she was charged with the defense of the estates of her husband. Now, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but the castle was Castle Chaita. In the village of Chaita was being demolished and terrorized and, you know, disattacked and harassed by the Ottoman Empire. It was completely under siege. Sar Sarvar, which was located near the border that divided royal Hungary from the Ottoman Empire occupied Hungary, was in greater danger. Elizabeth had in intervened on behalf of destitute women, especially a woman who had a daughter who was raped and impregnated by a member of the Ottoman Empire. Now, Elizabeth herself had children. She had about five kids. She had Anna, Caitlin, Paul, Andreas. and Orsulia. All of Elizabeth's children had been cared for by a governess, just like Elizabeth had been. Ferenz had died on the 4th of January, 1604, at the age of 48. The exact nature or illness of his death is unknown. It had seemed to first develop in 1601, giving him debilitating pain in his legs and he never fully recovered. Then, in 1603, he became completely disabled. Ferenc had then, Ferenc had been married to Elizabeth for 29 years. Before dying, Ferenc entrusted his heirs and his widow to George Forso. And we're going to learn a little bit more about George Thurso in a little bit further down the road of tonight's episode. It's also said that while Ferenc was away at war, Elizabeth would have taken up various and many lovers in the time of her husband's disappearance, I mean his absence. I mean, I think I read somewhere that she actually had an affair with a guy named Ironhead Steve. I mean, Ironhead Steve. Sounds like a great guy. Sounds really friendly. <laughs> so here we go. Now we're going to get into the infamy of Ashabet Batory. Soon, word began to spread of Elizabeth's 
atrocious behavior. It was said that she enjoyed torturing young girls and killing them. They were her victims, the daughters of poor peasants who were brought to her castle as servants. Then other girls were brought to the castle. These were the daughters of gentry families. Those daughters were brought to the castle to learn good manners. Then, in 1609, claims of slain young women from noble families gained attention, unlike the claims of slain young women from peasant families. Those claims were ignored. Elizabeth believed that drinking the blood of young virgin girls would preserve her youthfulness and beauty. Witnesses of her crimes claimed that she would either stab her victims or she would bite their breasts, face, or their arms to draw blood. She also would stick needles into the lips of her victims or she would burn them with red-hot coins, irons, or keys. Some of the girls were starved to death or beaten to death. An estimated 650 women were the victims of Elizabeth Bathory. Here are some more accounts of her atrocities through surviving testimonials, through herself or some or through her closest servants. Now, you may want to turn this part of the episode off if you're squeamish about blood or violence or any type of, you know, brutality, because this part is quite rough to learn about. Like I said, this part, when I was doing my research for tonight's episode, I was completely fabricated. I was completely shocked. So, let's begin about what she apparently really did. According to witnesses, she would beat the young women with such brutality that there was indeed so much blood on the walls and beds that the blood had to be soaked up with ashes and cinders. She would keep her servants chained up every night so tight by their wrists that their hands would turn their hands turned blue in spurted blood. While in Vienna, she beat one of her servants so badly that the neighboring monks in a monastery clanged clay pots against the walls in protest. She strangled a servant with a silk scarf that is known as the Turkish way. 
she would keep her servants or her victims from eating for a week at a time. If they would get thirsty, they would be forced to drink their own urine. She stitched her servants' lips and tongues together. She would make her victims sit on stinging nettles. Then she would order them to bathe with these said stinging nettles. And then while doing so, Elizabeth would push the nettles into the girl's shoulders and into their breasts. She apparently cast a spell. Remember how she how we said that her family was basically accused of practicing the occult? Well, so was Elizabeth Bathory. And she was also accused of conjuring up a spell. A spell of a cloud filled with 90 cats to torment her enemies. Could you imagine that? A cat... a cloud filled with 90 cats my goodness gracious elizabeth would also she was also accused of she stuffed five corpses of former servants underneath a bed and she continued to feed them as if they were alive Elizabeth forced her servants to cook and eat their own flesh or make their flesh into sausage and serve it to guests. She burned her servants and she buried her servants in gardens, grain pits, grain pits, orchards, and sometimes even cemeteries. She was also accused of smearing a girl who was naked with honey all over her body, allowing her to be bitten by ants, flies, and stung by wasps and bees. So basically, she was left to be devoured by insects. She also ironed the soles of her servants' feet. She would also stick red-hot irons into their vaginas. She had her victims stand in ice-cold water that came up to their necks until they died. On one occasion, Elizabeth had heated up a cake to red-hot temperatures and made her own servant eat it. And one last thing that I have written down here is that she apparently baked a cake, a magical, poisonous cake, to kill a magistrate who was her rival, George Thorzo. Now, the actual claims that Elizabeth Bathory had bathed in blood was seemed to have been added on years after her death. From what I gather from it, she didn't actually bathe in blood. What she did is that she basically applied it to her face. Almost kind of like what we would... I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this. And it's not quite the same, but it's kind of similar, I guess. They call it a vampire facial, I think. 
and you do put blood on your face, but you don't bathe in it. You just apply it like a face cream or some kind of face mask, like a Freeman face mask, you know. But she never actually bathed in blood. The Hungarian authorities launched an investigation when a Lutheran minister came to them in 1610. That December in 1610, Elizabeth, along with four of her favorite servants and intimates who were accused of being her accomplices, were all charged and they were all found guilty. Three of them were executed, and the fourth, who was... Elizabeth was sentenced to life imprisonment because of her family's standing. Elizabeth was not put on trial, and she was bricked up inside castle, inside her home castle. She was held in solitary confinement inside a room with the windows walled up. She died at the age of 54 in the year 1614. She died August 21st, 1614. On December 29th, 1610, Count George Thorzo, who oversaw judicial matters of the of Palatine, Hungary, he arrived at Elizabeth's castle and began an investigation. Extraordinarily, he actually caught Countess Elizabeth Bathory in the middle of tormenting a servant. She was immediately imprisoned in her home. Four of her servants who were arrested, three ladies and one guy, three old ladies and one man, they themselves were subjected to torture and they admitted to burying multiple bodies. Two of the women and the man were quickly sentenced to death, which was quickly carried out. There was another lady who used magic with Elizabeth, who was also killed due to the shifting blame from the other culprits. They also tried to blame a dead servant, Davulia, who served as a maid and a governess. The original four accomplices, the fourth a woman who was spared execution, but what actually happened to her is unknown, George Thorzo continued to investigate Elizabeth Bathory. According to what witness, Elizabeth herself listed 650 victims in her papers. 
The evidence against Elizabeth that George Warzo had gathered from was from 289 witnesses. The body of Elizabeth was found in her home castle in present-day Slovakia. Now, here in the, here's the part in the episode, I want to tell you guys a couple true ghost stories that I found just circulating the web. And as I said before, if you guys follow Demi Mont Paranormal on Facebook.com, I asked if any of you guys have any true ghost or paranormal stories that you would like to be told on Demimond Paranormal Podcast, you can send me your story, and on any given episode, I will tell it. But tonight, I found a couple little spooky little stories that I just found around the web, you know, it's not actually from any members or anything like that. It's just something, you know, I've just found surfing. Our first story is from Brad Culp. Now, this ghost story is entitled The Ghost of Oxford Millford Road. Oxford Millford Road.
when Brad Culp was a student at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, there was a rumor that the town was one of the most haunted places in America. When Culp started an on-campus magazine, he couldn't wait to write about several of the area's most haunted, most famous phantoms. Not long after his story published, though, he kept finding himself thinking about one ghost in particular, the ghost of Oxford Milford Road. As the story goes, many decades ago, probably sometime in the 1940s, there was a young man courting a young woman in a rural part of town. Because of the woman's parents didn't approve of the match, each night he visited under the cover of darkness. After her parents went to bed, the young woman would sneak out of her farmhouse and flash the lights of her parents' car three times. Then her young suitor would ride his motorcycle down the road. One night he took the turn right before her, before her house a little too sharp. The motorcycle went one way and he went the other. His injuries were so severe that he did not survive. Rumor has it, however, that his love-struck ghost still haunts this stretch of road, of Milford Road. So, curious, Brad Culp and his girlfriend, who was now his wife, and a friend of his decided to head out there one night to see if they could verify this tale. His girlfriend was worried that she'd be completely freaked out. She believes more in the stuff than I do, Culp says. But he was mostly concerned about his suspicions that one of, his, that one of this was actually true would be confirmed. On this particular night, as Brad Cole passed the abandoned farm, an idea came to him, and he pitched it to his girlfriend. Though reluctant, she relented, and Culp turned a short way into the farmhouse driveway. He killed the engine and flashed his lights three times. And according to Brad Culp, no joke, there was a single headlight that appeared three quarters of a mile down the road. You saw it start to come, going pretty slow. It kept coming and coming. My wife was freaking out. It was coming closer and closer. As the collision seemed imminent, Brad Culp turned his car lights he turned on his car lights. He expected to see a kid on a bike bailing from his pink from his prank now that he had been caught. But there's nothing there. The light was just gone.
Our next story is by a professional skier by the name of Drew Tabke. Now this story is entitled The Ghost of La Parfa Ski Resort. Throughout Latin America, you'll hear variations of the story of La Llorona, or the Wailing Woman. Sometimes she lost her husband, sometimes she lost her children, sometimes it's both. But in La Parva, a ski spot in the Chilean Andes, the Wailing Woman is named Lola, and everyone in the area swears they knew her before she died. A local restaurant owner said he dated her according to Drew Tabsky, Tabke. The story starts on a nice day in peak ski season. Lola and her young son plan to spend the day on the slopes. As it can happen in the Andes, a thick fog rose up from the alley, which then proceeds the arrival of a real storm. The clouds enveloped the two as they were making their way down from the top of the mountain, and they lost contact with one another. Desperate to find her son, Lola began screaming his name as she ran through the thick, the thick fog. Thick fog, sorry, y'all. Unable to see clearly, though, she stumbled down a steep slope and began sliding towards. A rocky collier. By chance, a local lift operator who had been turning to his cabin across her body came across her body. He was afraid that she was dead, but upon closer inspection, he found she was still alive, but just barely. Her body was covered in lacerations from sharp rocks. And the only word she said in a faintest, in a faintest whisper, was her son's name. The lift operator worked so carefully to pull her body up to his cabin, which was just up on the hill. He bandaged her cuts as best he could, and then ran to fetch the doctor. Together, the doctor and the lift operator made their way back to his hut. The fog hanging thickly in the wind in the air. When they arrived, though, the bed was empty and just the bloody sheets remained. Neither the woman nor her son was ever found, but locals report hearing her wail for her child never there near that lift operator's cabin. And Drew Tapke does not believe in ghosts. Something, however, changes when he arrives in Chile each winter. Maybe it's the fact from La Parva you can see up to a Chile in an Incan child sacrifice site. But maybe it's because Tapke was simply read too many magical realism books by authors. But sitting alone in his cabin in the Andes, with the winds whipping and the candles flickering, he swears that every now and then 
he can, he just can't tell if he can hear the sound of the wind or he's say he if or if he's hearing the sound of the woman. So, I have one more story that I have in my reach, and if you guys want to hear it, you you know, keep on listening, and if you don't, skip on past it to the afterthoughts. But our next story is not about ghosts, it's actually about aliens. Now, our next story is entitled, Was It People or Was It Aliens? By Doug Averville, who was a retired owner and manager of the Flathead Lake Lodge. Doug Averville grew up as one of eight boys on his parents' sprawling dude ranch. The Flathead Lake Lodge in rural Montana. As a teen, the Averill boys ran wild we rode around as little gang of cowboys. Doug Averill remembers they'd saddle up and head off to check cattle on the three giant tracts of land the family managed, which formed a triangle around some of the state's most remote rangelands. However, one summer in the 1960s, the boys came across a ghastly sight. There on the ground were three dead cows neatly arranged in a circle. No obvious wounds were visible, but their reproductive organs had been removed. But there was never any blood. It was almost surgical, as Doug Averill remembers. During this decade, America was obsessed with aliens in writings and write-ups in the local newspapers posted that perhaps this was the work of extraterrestrials. People mused that aliens had taken the reproductive organs for testing. But one day, Avril and his friends came across a lance in their path. Attached to, the, attached to it was a cryptic note with a threatening message, and the message said, That's when, oh, it doesn't tell me what the message said. But then things got strange. And with that threat, with that threatening message, y'all, that's when Doug Averill thought it was actually people doing this. 
and not aliens or extraterrestrials. But that's when things got really strange. Over the next few days, a series of odd events unfolded. First, the brothers stopped in a local bar to grab a hamburger, leaving their horses in the back of a stock truck. The horses were packed tightly, and the Averils were only in there for a few minutes. When they came back out, the horses were packed into the middle of the truck without any sign of a struggle. We had no idea how they possibly could have gotten that horse unloaded without unloading all the others. The next day, a new wrangler on the ranch fell off his horse and was badly injured. They'd all been riding together, but not a single other member of the crew saw the incident, the accident. It was the weirdest thing, Doug Avril says. The man's injury was so severe that he had permanently been disabled. Finally, the last terrible thing that happened was, in, was when an old camp cook drove out to meet the brothers for a ride for a day. When he arrived, the tailgate on his stock truck had somehow gone missing, even though it had been there when he had loaded up. His horse, who was named ba Betsy, had fallen out of the truck and was being dragged behind the vehicle for who knows how long. They had to put her down on the spot. And according to Doug Averill, to be honest, it was it just killed him to see what had happened to Betsy. We were probably we probably should have put him down too, according to Doug Averill. Those three events were just boom boom boom. Three things in a row that were so weird, all tied together because they were right after we saw that spear, he remembers. Three things, the horses, the dead cows, the injury, Doug Averill used to tell the stories from that summer around the camp campfire quite a lot, but over the years he's gotten new stories, so they've all been shifted out of rotation, sometimes they're awfully grim. But he recently got a call about a drowned bull, a buffalo. It was out in one of the most remote parts of his ranch. A neighbor had seen a pack of 16 wolves, and normally wolves don't bother buffalo, but 16 of them? I thought, well, maybe, according to Doug Averill. He went to investigate, and there, lying in a snow-covered field, was the bull. But there was no bullet holes or teeth marks or gashes in his corpse. Even stranger scavenging animals or birds haven't touched it. Not even the buzzards, which is really unusual. One other thing is there that was amiss. Its reproductive organs were also gone. 
and there wasn't a single footprint in the snow around it or going anywhere along the mile-long walk into the ranch to the nearest road. Now, if you ask, if you ask Doug Avril whether he thinks he's dealing with aliens or humans, and he'll tell you he's pretty sure it's humans. But according to him, I'd rather it was humans. That summer back in the 60s, seeing what humans were capable of, he'd pick aliens any day. Well, that, those were your three short ghost and alien stories. I hope you guys enjoyed those. And if you guys would like to hear more, you know, various paranormal stories included in with the topic of the night or episode, you guys let me know down in the comments on Facebook. And for now, I'll see you guys in the afterthoughts and then the outro for the ending of tonight's episode. So, while doing the research on Elizabeth Bathory for tonight's episode, I've also learned that, kind of similar to how people may regard Vlad the Impaler, some people believe that Elizabeth Bathory was actually innocent. They believe that she wasn't a nice person, but she, they believed that she was the victim of hearsay, and they believed that she was, you know, almost railroaded because she was a very, very powerful female or woman in a male-dominated place, world, if you would. And just kind of like how some people may regard... Vlad the Impaler as a hero, and not a bloodthirsty tyrant. But I'm going to let you guys decide for yourselves whether you actually believe if Elizabeth Bathory may have been innocent. I mean, take for instance her servants or her closest servants. A lot, most of those old ladies, the three old ladies that we talked about earlier in the episode, they were subject to, they were subjected to torture. So they probably just spurted out anything to make the pain stop. And that was, you know, regarded as, you know, not very reliable because you'd say anything to stop being tortured, right? And also, as for George... Thorso, he also had witnesses that were basically under his rule, under his command, to say that, oh, we saw Elizabeth Bathory, you know, 
burning her servant girls with red-hot irons, and we saw her beat them so brutally that blood sprayed on the wall that was so wet that ashes and cinder had to be was used to soak up the blood. So it, those are just a couple things that are just, you know, pulled from the top of my mind to just consider. Was she the victim of hearsay? Or was she really just a human monster? And with that being said, I'm going to take you guys to the outro. Also, let me get, let me tell you guys about my little experiment. I went to, no, I didn't have an experiment. I had an experience. I, you know, went for a walk today. And it was so great to be around nature again. I found many wildflowers and butterfly weed and all that good stuff but this week I'm not going to tell you guys about any new candles that I bought because I didn't <laughs> maybe next week you'll have to listen to me rambling about candles and wildflowers but with all that said that brings us to the end of the episode so let me get to my thank yous So, I want to thank you all, you all so, so much for tonight, for tonight's episode, for you guys tuning in. I hope you enjoyed tonight's subject. I hope to see you guys next week. I don't know what the topic will be. It might be on a haunted place, or it might be about a haunted country. I'm not so sure yet. But with that being said, I wish you guys a good night, stay safe, make good choices, and I'll see you for a new episode next Friday. And as always, stay spooky.